agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by two historians of science, Harvard's Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway from Caltech. They've co-authored a number of books, including Merchants of Doubt, The Collapse of Western Civilization, and their latest book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market, which we'll be talking about today. Naomi and Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, you know, I should start off by saying we are a bipartisan podcast, and as such, we have a number of listeners who probably after they heard the title of your book are thinking to themselves something like, great, there's another anti-capitalism screed from the progressive left. But I don't think it would be really fair to say that you're anti-capitalism. And so I thought we could start with that. And maybe, uh, uh, Naomi, if you want to start with this, how would you characterize your view of capitalism and big business in the book? Well, you're absolutely right. We're not anti-capitalism. What we're really doing is trying to call attention to a set of myths about capitalism, uh, myths that we think have been destructive because they've prevented us from using capitalism in a way that benefits all people and that protects the environment, protects workers. So we're not anti-capitalism. What we are is we're anti-dishonesty. Okay, that's and, and and you talk about uh, well the title of the book is the big myth and so I think we should start by getting right into that. What exactly is uh, the big myth that you refer to in the title of your book, uh, Eric? Do you want to take this one? Well, sure. the the The, the big myth is the idea that um, free markets are the only thing that protect our political freedoms. Um, it's a central. A talking point of the actors in our story, um, this this idea. Um, when we know that's not true either, there. I've always asked questions about China nowadays. People's Republic of China being a, an authoritarian capitalist state. They have markets without democracy, without any kind of political freedom. Um, so that's the big myth that we start to confront, um, and we we came to that through. Um, our own, uh, through our investigation of the history of market fundamentalism, um, at, which we, we sort of first broached in, um, in, um, Merchants of Doubt. So, so you're not saying that markets are bad. In fact, in some ways, I think you'd probably agree that markets are pretty good and very efficient for a lot of things, but it's markets aren't the end all and the be all, essentially. Well, that's power. right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. I took, right. I'm out of turn. No, that's okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if that was a follow-up or a new question. So, um, right. I mean, our argument is, first of all, that markets are tools. Um, and like any tool, whether it's a hammer, a chainsaw, uh, an eyebrow plucker, you know, tools are used, designed for certain jobs, and they're good for some jobs, and they're not good for other jobs. And so to think that markets could somehow solve all our problems is just, you know, implausible on the face of it. And the other important part of the argument is that the notion of the free market, a big part of the big myth, is the idea that there even could be such a thing as the free market that exists apart from society, apart from culture, when in reality, markets are institutions that are built by people. All markets have some degrees of rule of regulation. So the real question is, 
you know, what should those rules and regulations be? And how do we create effective tools to deal with market failure like the climate crisis? So, so in that sense, then there are really two big myths, both that markets can do everything all the time for everyone and just the myth that there can be any sort of a free market in the first place in that kind of platonic sense, if you will. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, um, as I put it, markets are very powerful tools. But as Naomi was suggesting earlier, she said market it, tools are designed. Well, we design markets too. Markets are our social constructs. Um, and, and part of the big myth has been designed to cause us, we the people, to think of markets as independent so that we don't attempt to design them. We don't attempt to control them, leaving them as the purview of businessmen um, and other kinds of, of political elites. And and our point is that, no, they're social constructs and, uh, and we should make use of them, the best possible use of them we can. Yeah. I mean, in a way, what I would say is there's really three pieces to the myth. The first part is the notion of the free market that stands apart from society, that's untrue, never could exist, never has existed. The second is the idea that we should have faith in markets, just trust them because they have wisdom, they have agency. We can just trust, quote, the invisible hand to sort out problems and produce efficient solutions. And then the third part is the part that Eric led with, and this is a big part of the neoliberal ideology that is a central part of this story, that somehow markets are not just efficient means to deliver goods and services, which is an economic argument, but a political argument that we have to protect free markets because that also protects political freedom. And so in the book, we unpack all three parts of that myth and show how all parts of that, all three parts are uh, quite misleading. Right. And, and, and the book you talk about, I, I love this phrase, the, the tripod of freedom. Uh, the great phrase, uh, it sticks in your head. Can you, uh, talk a little bit more about what that tripod consists of and how it's connected to that larger great myth? And as you sort of alluded to already. Yeah. I mean, why you did that? You're very good at that particular one. Okay. So the tripod of freedom was a concept that was developed in 1939 by a trade organization known as the National Association of Manufacturers. NAM was very upset about a set of reforms that had been put in place during the New Deal, reforms that were mainly designed to protect workers, things like the eight-hour day or the 40-hour week, also laws against child labor. And so in order to fight back against these reforms that the vast majority of the American people liked, they had to come up with an argument for why these reforms, which on the face of it seemed reasonable and fair, were, in their opinion, actually not a good idea. And so they came up with this notion of the tripod of freedom, that American society was based on three essential ideas. One was representative democracy, as instantiated in the U.S. Constitution. The second were our political freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, as instantiated in the Bill of Rights. And the third, they claimed, was free enterprise capitalism. And so the argument was that because it was a tripod, its stability rested on the integrity of all three legs. And so if you compromised any one leg, in this case, the specific leg that they're concerned about is economic freedom, uh, say by passing a minimum wage law, the risk was that the entire structure of American society would, would collapse. Now, this was a complete fabrication. The words free enterprise do not appear in the Constitution. They do not appear in the Bill of Rights. And they hardly ever even really appear in the writings of the founding fathers. People 
talked about private enterprise in the 19th century. They didn't really talk about free enterprise. So it's a myth. It's an invention, but it's designed to persuade the American people that reforms like Social Security, which might on the face of it seem like a good idea, really are not because in the end they'll end up compromising our political freedom and ultimately compromising our entire democracy. And this is then used then to try to draw up general support for defending really the prerogatives of big business. Right. Because you don't want your tripod to fall over. Uh, so. Yeah, it, exactly. You mentioned uh, uh, Nam in, in the 1930s, and at one point in the book, you talk about how what you're writing about, in a sense, is the history of a construction of a myth, and that that's really because when I saw the book the first time, the, when I saw the book initially, I thought, well, okay, I, I bet I'm going to be familiar with some of these arguments, and I was, but what I wasn't familiar with, not nearly as much as I thought I was, is that myth construction business, and. It really is a, a fascinating, rich story, and I learned an awful lot. And one of the, I wanted to ask you about some of the, the parts of this. Oh, one thing that really stuck out in my mind is I think there was some point right in the 1930s when the big electric companies were, they were apparently telling some rural farmers without electricity, uh, no, you don't really need electricity. It's not all it's cracked up to be, which on the face of it sounds insane. Can, can you talk about the, the logic, the so-called logic that kind of led to that type of campaign, if you will? Well, so electricity is a great case, you know, because it's, it's, it's electricity generation, light bulbs and so forth are famous for American in ingenuity and innovation and so forth. Um, and Electrification of urban America happened very quickly, um, but basically by the turn of, by by the by the 1920, um, electrification in the United States is stalled out at the borders of the cities, um, and so rural America wasn't getting it from the markets. So there were then reformers um, who began to advocate for electricity as a new modern tool a service that should be universal to everyone. Um, and this comes up in, there's a famous case in Pennsylvania, for example, with giant power um, and, and, and so on. And this becomes very hard fought between people who wanted to have the government generate and distribute electricity, um, which ultimately is one of the things that happens in, in Canada and throughout Europe, um, and versus the free enterprisers here in the United States who wanted it to remain entirely private. Um, and then the Roosevelt administration, of course, um, embarks in a, several different um, means of trying to bring about rural electrification. Famous one is the Rural Electrification Administration that offered low interest loans to farmers cooperatives, um, which was a, had a huge effect in uh, electrifying rural America. Uh, the other, of course, is famous one is the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and throughout this period in the United States, there are arguments uh, um, by these anti-social um, or socialist in a lot of ways, um, I think anti-social better. I think they're very yeah. anti-social. They're actually. very anti-social, but they <laughs> like to declaim against these public power ideas as being socialist and communist in nature. Um, and in a sense, they are, of course. One of the major definitions of socialism is public ownership of the means of production. Um, and so that whole idea becomes part of the um, hard-fought anti-communist arguments. Um, the, Naomi found some great material on um, – on, on campaigns, textbook campaigns, for example, um, 
by the National Electric Light Association to get uh, college professors to write textbooks that could be then used um, in other college courses um, and even at the high school level to promote private electricity generation and so forth. Um, and so it's winds up being quite a story, but it's, it helps to, with the beginning of the construction of this myth of the free market. Yeah, and if I could jump in on that, one of the really key points that comes out in this is a kind of false dichotomy that is constructed that either you have a completely free market on the one hand, unregulated, untrammeled, or you know, you're on the road to communist dictatorship. And one of the interesting things about the electricity debate is that Electricity was never a completely competitive system because people had already recognized the notion of a natural monopoly, that it would be inefficient and kind of frankly stupid to have multiple electricity lines running into a community. So it made sense for one company to do it, but then for that company to be regulated to ensure that they didn't build the consumer. Um, and giant power, which was the main proposal uh, that Eric was just referring to, it was not socialistic. Private companies could still operate. It, it was not about the state owning the means of production. Private companies could still generate electricity, but what they would have to do is they would have to feed into a grid, a common grid, so the state would ensure that every citizen of the state got electricity. Because when it was left to the private sector, as Eric just said, only cities had electricity because that was the only place where the companies felt they could make sufficient profit. So it's a hybrid system that that giant power was proposed. And if you think about it, we have a lot of these hybrid systems in the United States um, nowadays of public-private sorts of partnerships that um, one of the uh, the way the great dams, the way many of the dams, for example, of the New Deal were built, the government paid for the dam and then private companies paid for the electrical generators that went in them, et cetera. There are lots of these hybrid um experiments, you want to call them maybe, that went on to try to find ways of protecting both some element of private uh, activity as well as ensuring fairer distribution. And, you know, this reminds me a lot in, in more modern times about some fights we've been having over broadband Internet when cities in some instances have tried to set up their own uh, their own Internet. There's been a lot of pushback from uh, uh, from from some entities uh, oftentimes. And it seems like this is a very similar situation uh, playing out again in the 21st century as played out uh, a century or more ago or. Well, that's right. And one of the challenges of the sort of ideal free market model is that there are certain things that aren't just commodities, but they become necessities or even rights. And so, as Eric said, you know, when electricity is first introduced, it's a novelty. And at first, people just think it's kind of fun to have lighting. But as it becomes more and more part of American life, people begin to see it as a necessity, to see it as something that's more akin to a water supply. You can't really can't manage in a modern world without electricity. And we're seeing that exact same thing in, uh, again now with broadband, because once upon a time and when the Internet was first invented, you know, I can remember in grad school talking to friends on the other side of the country over ARPANET. And that was a novelty and it was fun and it was cheaper than long distance phone calls. But it wasn't a necessity. But now today it is. I mean, you cannot function in modern society. You can't find out. A, you can't book an airline ticket. You can't find out uh, the schedule for the for a bus. You can't. My children can't get their homework. I mean, you really cannot function in modern society without access to broadband internet. And yet we have many places where it's controlled by essentially monopolistic companies, um, which 
you know, bill consumers don't deliver the service that they're supposed to be delivering. And so this is why um, we often see calls for regulations for these crucial industries that supply things that are not just discretionary, like shoes or a bicycle, but are really essential functions of modern life. Yeah, it, it occurs to me that uh, another part of this is that while there's all this talk about the competitive free enterprise system, and that's part of this myth, uh, that's not something that companies actually want. They would much prefer monopolistic situations where they can jack up prices and control markets for, for profits. And so I guess that would be another element of this whole thing. Yep, that's one of the ele another element of the of the myth. Although is um, is anti monopoly, and and we we do some work on, um, on on the Chicago School of Economics's role in developing an anti anti monopoly um, ideology, really um, an anti antitrust ideology that's designed to defang the government in dealing with large corporations so that it will not enforce the anti-monopoly statutes that have been on the books since the late 19th century. Right, because if you're, if you're an actual market fundamentalist, you would want there to be competitive markets because the theory would suggest it wouldn't work unless you have robust competition and yet you have people arguing against that very thing and yet claiming to be fans of the market when that doesn't really track, it seems to me. Well, well exactly. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Okay. Well, I was saying, well, exactly. And this is why, again, as we said at the outset, this isn't really a book about capitalism. It's a book about the myths of capitalism that certain people have promoted in order to promote their own interest and try to persuade us uh, that this would, you know, that it's the old, what's good for GM is good for America, when in reality, that's actually not true. So as you said, the theory of capitalism is one in which competition is a good thing because we get better goods and services through competition. But in the reality, what you really look at when you see major large corporations, often they fight against competition. They don't want competition and they take great steps to drive out competitors to control markets so that they can, um, well, increase market share to increase profit, but also sometimes drive out competitors so they can raise prices. And one of the really key parts of the story that's kind of a tell kind of gives the game away that they don't actually believe in competition is the way these business executives fund the Chicago School of Economics, and they fund a specific project called the Free Market Project. And one component of this, so the idea is to promote free market ideology through academic economics. And one key part is this program called the Antitrust Project. But we see in the book, they really should have called it the Anti-Antitrust Project because it's an argument against antitrust enforcement. And this argument is based on, again, another invention, just like the Tripod of Freedom, was an invention. They invent the notion of the consumer welfare standard. And if there are any lawyers listening, they, they know what this is. It's very widespread in legal circles. And the argument they made, and this argument was particularly promoted by Robert Bork, who was Ronald Reagan's failed nominee for the Supreme Court. Um, Bork argued, you know, oh, you think that monopolies are bad, but actually it's, they're fine because they're the winners in a Darwinian struggle for survival. They're the best companies. And that's why they win in this battle, this competitive battle. And so as long as they keep the prices down, and they often do, he says, he claims, they keep prices down because they're so efficient, it's actually good for the consumer. And so as long as prices are low, you should not enforce antitrust regulation. And they published this argument in leading journals, particularly the Chicago School, uh, the law, the Journal of Law and Economics. And this proves to be extremely influential with judges 
who then basically throw out a whole lot of antitrust uh, cases. And so the U.S. government then um, fi either finds it very difficult to enforce the antitrust statutes that are actually on the book because of this essentially rewriting of history, or they don't even bother to bring the cases because they think, well, we can't win them anyway. And so in the last 40 years in America, we've seen, or maybe more than 40 years, 40 to 50 years, massive non-enforcement of the laws that are actually on the books. And this has led to massive consolidation in telecommunications, in entertainment, in food and agriculture. So in many areas of American life, we do not have competition and the consumer is really at the mercy of companies uh, who basically set the rules and the prices. You know, I, it seemed to me that in, in reading about the construction of this myth, a lot of the opposition arguments were in some way focused on fears of communism, socialism, these sort of slippery slope arguments about, well, if this happens, you know, next thing you know, we're all going to be Bolsheviks, that sort of thing. And, and we're on, as Hayek put it, the, the road to serfdom. I wonder, though, do you think that was wholly unfounded or, or were there some maybe legitimate reasons to be concerned about communist socialist influence in the U.S., at least in certain parts of the 20th century? Well, of course, what we started in, in the book is to look back at um, opposition to child labor laws um, and to workplace safety laws. Um, much of which also derived from the union movement and which did in the United States, uh, in many cases anyway, have ties to socialist parties. Um, where they go wrong is with the slippery slope inevitabilities kinds of arguments. Um, one of the realities now that we've had a century and some change of experience here is that, you know, lots of countries have successfully managed to maintain their political freedoms and their their market economies, despite also having active socialist parties and movements. Um, so it's what what we argue in the book is that you know the, in in the area realm of propaganda, there's this idea of constructing a false binary, um, leaving out the middle realm of possibilities in in order to construct your rhetoric, um, and that's what they've done here uh, in order to convince the American public that that we're just on the slippery slope to communism if we have social security. And it, it seems to me part of this argument, the slippery slope argument, I guess, is based on uh, the Hayek's work. And it seems to me one of his critical arguments was essentially that, well, if if we don't preserve economic freedom, we can't preserve political freedom, that the two are, well, I guess that goes back to that tripod. So, so I guess you wouldn't necessarily agree with Hayek's conclusion, assuming I'm, I'm uh, concluding from Hayek correctly. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's really the core part of the market fundamentalist argument that we focus on to quite a great degree in the book. And, you know, to get back to your original question, look, all good myths have a kernel of truth. It can't be like a complete lie or else people generally don't fall for it. But if you can find some element of concern that might be at least to some degree possibly legitimate, that's where the argument begins. So in the 1930s, when Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek are developing the foundations of Austrian economics, there is a big question in Europe about the future of capitalism. Capitalism in the 1930s was in free fall. Right. We were in the we were in the midst of the greatest economic crisis in the history of mankind. And it is true. And as 
Eric alluded to a minute ago, there were some people in the West, including particularly at the London School of Economics, who were saying, look, in the face of this economic catastrophe, capitalism has failed. We have to consider the possibilities of central planning of the economy. So Hayek in particular is reacting to that argument. And it's not illegitimate to take on that argument and to say, okay, well, you know, is that the solution? And so he has a compelling argument against central planning, which he gets from his mentor, von Mises, which is to say, if you allow the government to plan the economy in the way that the Soviet Union was doing at that time, it's really, really risky to democracy because the government has to make all these decisions. And the only way they can control the economy is by saying, well, you need to work in this factory, you need to work in that factory, you might have to move to a different city. So it is coercive in the Soviet model. The logical error they make, though, is the slippery slope fallacy to say that, therefore, any kind of government engagement in the economic life of the nation, anything at all, whether it's social security, national health, um, potentially puts you on that road to serfdom. And that's the logical error that then becomes perpetuated and worsened by the American acolytes. Because if you actually read Hayek, which we, of course, did for this book, um, Hayek actually says, well, OK, hold on. Wait, there are some exceptions. Actually, some kinds of social security to address the worst provision. That's probably a good idea. And you do need laws against pollution and you do need laws against deforestation. And actually need some workplace safety as well, like to deal with really dangerous chemicals. So he's not actually arguing for a complete laissez-faire environment. In fact, there's even a place in the book where he says it's not laissez-faire, what I'm arguing for. But the American businessmen who invite him to America, who get him hired at the University of Chicago, they turn it into a brief for a completely unregulated capitalism. And they do that in a bunch of uh, pretty appalling ways. And so in the book we talk about they create a Reader's Digest version of Friedrich von Hayek that leaves out all his discussion of having to regulate pollution and deforestation. And then they make a comic book. They make a cartoon version, which gets published in a major magazine, Look magazine, and distributed by General Motors. And we know for a fact that Ronald Reagan read Hayek, and we're pretty willing to bet money that he probably read the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, you know, th this reminds me as well uh, of some, what I would feel is some, uh, unfair oversimplification of Adam Smith, who's also kind of held up as a model to, I think, by a lot of market fundamentalists and the, the arguments that, that Adam Smith was for complete laissez-faire, non-government in, uh, interference. It's, it, it strikes me as, these people either didn't read The Wealth of Nations or certainly not the theory of moral sentiments, or if they did, they were willfully mischaracterizing Smith to advance an agenda. Well, so in the book, we talk about the George Stigler version of Adam Smith, <laughs> um, which deleted all of Smith's um, lengthy discussions of the need for banking regulation. You know, when, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, um, they, England had, had suffered um, – financially from 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 what Smith considered a plague of Scottish banks watering the currency um, and that led him to art to argue for strict banking regulation um, in a way that would probably horrify modern um, bankers uh, who think that Smith was some kind of of of, of master of laissez-faire but there were actually lots of elements where 
where Smith thought the government had to um, be a fundamental player in the economy. Um, it's not just regulation of banks. He thought that, well, you can only have one set of ports, so the government should should ensure that the ports are, are, are run in a public fashion. The same with roads and bridges. You couldn't have two sets of those with run by different companies, et cetera. So, so Smith always both thought that the government had to play a role in the nation's economy, um, and the debates ever since then should have been, what is that role? To what should the extent be? You know, how do we balance what, what I think Naomi and I both would agree, there are, certain, there are many things that markets are good at and some things they're bad at, and we have to figure out what those, those things are. And Smith had some good ideas, but uh, the, the, the uh, post-Chicago school of uh, economics folks really wanted to give us a version of Smith and of Hayek that were more suitable to their business sponsors. And that's what they got. To, to that, you, you mentioned something about the things that markets are good at and, and government's good at. I know that there are some people would say, well, markets are actually more responsive to Americans, at least Americans as consumers, than the political system is to Americans as citizens. And so therefore, uh, in balancing mark, more responsive markets and less responsive government, the obvious thing to do then, at least by this line of thinking, is to allow the market to have greater sway than less responsive government. I wanted to get your take on that. Well, I think that take, and I agree with you, a lot of people do think that proves how effective this propaganda has been, because there's no support in history for that argument. And in fact, if anything, the opposite. As we were just saying a few minutes ago, what we see is that when the private sector is left to its own devices, very often it degrades very quickly into monopolistic and anti-competitive practices because most businesses don't actually want competition. And so the idea that they're that they are responsive to consumer need, I mean, anyone who ever has tried to talk to their cable provider, anyone who's tried to um, get a lost phone back from Lyft, it just happened to me the other day, anyone who has ever, ever had to deal with the phone company back in the old days, well, phone company was a regulated monopoly, so maybe that's a bad example. But anyone who's tried to get customer service out of an airline or found a lost piece of luggage, we know that many of these corporations, probably most of them, are incredibly unresponsive to what people actually want. And they treat their consumer with massive disrespect. And they also... You know, a fundamental flaw in that argument is who exactly is the consumer? Because we also know that the market is highly responsive to wealthy consumers because, you know, that's where the money is. Milton Friedman used to like to argue that the market was democratic because it was a kind of one man, one vote system. And that was picked up by the CEO of Citibank, who repeated it repeatedly. Um, but it's not one man, one vote. It's one dollar, one vote. Yeah. So markets are necessarily always more responsive to people with more money. That is to say, the wealthy and the privileged. And the idea that that somehow is more democratic than a voting system is really an appalling claim. And then it's further made worse by the way in which large corporations then distort the political system. So we've seen in this country in recent years uh, shameless attempts to suppress voters, to suppress voter registration. Um, and where have been the big corporations? fighting for voting rights. I mean, there are a few actually, but not very many. We don't see the private sector in this company standing up for democracy very often. What we see is them standing up for their own interests, which very often are anti-democratic interests. So, so then you might even argue that to the extent that market principles have 
invaded the political realm. It's actually made the political realm less responsive because it's become more one dollar, one one vote, if you will, as opposed to maybe in a, an earlier age when campaign finance was less of an issue and there was perhaps more representation. I think that's fair. And the example I give is is lobbying in Congress. Um, it's not the citizenry, by and large, that can afford their own lobbyists. It's it's large businesses. And so they businesses get most of the attention in Washington. And it has um, unfortunately become a very sclerotic system because the businessmen get what they want and problems that affect huge numbers of Americans don't get addressed at all. Another issue I wanted to bring up is the issue of trust. Uh, I mean, there's no question that the government has lied to Americans a whole bunch of times over history. I mean, businesses have too, but some would say, well, there's an important difference here. And the difference is that government is far bigger than even the biggest business. And even more importantly, government has a monopoly on the use of force, the ability to take your freedom, even your life. And so Considering that, some people might say, well, it's reasonable to trust government less than I trust business. And I wanted to get your response to that. Yeah, that's a really important question. And it's a, it's one of the major arguments that the Chicago School used, particularly Milton Friedman in his classic book, Capitalism and Freedom, which has been extremely widely read by American conservatives, been a very, very influential book. And also he had a television series. So I would say that you know, in the time of Adam Smith, if we were living in 1776, when there was still a king and when capitalism was nascent and most corporations were pretty small and you needed a charter from the government even to form a corporation, I think, you know, 250 years ago, that argument made sense. But the problem is that that's not the world we live in today. In fact, the opposite. We live in a world where there are major corporations that are bigger and more powerful than many governments that have actually suppressed democracies, tried to overturn tobacco control in Nigeria, just to give one example. Um, and they use force. I mean, the idea, it's often said in sociology literature that government has a monopoly on force, but we know that's not true. I mean, just think about how, you know, the whole history of violence against corporate violence against workers, workers. think about the Ludlow coal strike, think about the Rockefeller hiring uh, troops to fire on striking workers. Um, Corporations have used violence against workers repeatedly in the history of American capitalism, um, and they also have other forms of coercion available to them. So, yes, in principle, one can see the argument that the government is more threatening than the multiplicity of private sector companies. But in practice, we live in a world where many private sector companies are as powerful or even more powerful than many governments especially when we're talking about state governments, right? Most of the state governments are smaller than, than even medium-sized corporations. Well, and that's right. So that, that, that doesn't hold water at all. <laughs> I want to turn to some more modern events. In the book, you talk a bit about uh, uh, the pandemic. And so could you talk a little bit about how you see the big myth playing out in our response to COVID-19 and, and uh, the, the problems, I guess, uh, of that big myth-related response? Oh, difficult question. <laughs> yeah. um, but also not surprising to us, I guess, um, because what we saw was a, a how do I even want to put it? A, a hodgepodge is the word I'm thinking of response in which some states took the pandemic seriously um, and took major measures to um, to keep people home and safe and other states didn't. Um, 
And it seems to me anyway that in a great many cases, the states who were not taking very effective action or simply denying the existence of the pandemic at all were those most influenced by the market fundamentalist case um, and couldn't accept these restrictions on people. And you and we're all familiar with the arguments that were used that somehow face max were anti-liberty and, and, and so on. Um, and so, so to us, it made sense that these things were connected. Now, now, some people. You know I think Naomi oh, has. No. Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think we saw very clearly, especially in the early stages of the pandemic, that the Trump administration was very reluctant to mobilize the power of the federal government to address this, and that played out in a lot of different ways. But in in a lot of ways, it played out in a kind of emergence of doubt scenario where they at first kind of dismissed yeah. the scientific evidence of how serious this was. And then eventually they sort of said, okay, well, it is serious, but we still don't really want to, you know, use like the War Production Act. And one of the people who was part of Trump's early task force was Ken Cuccinelli, who's a climate change denier. So there was a big anti-scientific component in this, which in our other work we showed was directly related to market fundamentalism, directly related to the idea that you should just let the market do its thing and hope for the best. But the reality is the result was not the best. In fact, it was one of the worst. The COVID death rate in the United States was way higher than in most other wealthy nations and even higher than in many much poorer nations yeah. like Vietnam, because we resisted doing something about it. Um, you know, Eric and I did a piece for Time magazine where we said, look, the problem is there's no free market case for stockpiling billions of masks. But when a pandemic hits, now you have a problem that the private sector can't really handle because it can't respond fast enough. Um, so who could have stockpiled masks? Well, the federal government could have. Federal government could have stockpiled ventilators, but didn't because there was a mentality that told us that that was inefficient or that that was a waste of taxpayer money, even though it could have saved huge numbers of lives. And if you look at the COVID deaths, I mean, more than a million people uh, in this country have died. And there's now several studies, including one by the prestigious Lancet Commission that have concluded that if we had responded more like other countries, that death toll probably could have been cut in half. You know, I, on the other hand, I think some folks might point to something like uh, the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed and say, look at what a country built on these principles did. This unprecedented private sector, largely run enterprise that created an incredible vaccine in record time. And it was this was this was only possible in America. And isn't this an example of, hey, sure, there are some flaws, but what we're doing fundamentally works uh, in, in a way that it doesn't work anywhere else. Eric, do you want right. to take that? Sure. Well, so first I'd point out that one of the companies that had these miracle vaccines wasn't an American company. Um, and then second, of course, the government financed Operation Warp Speed. Um, it was paying the bills. Um, and it's, and of course, our, our, uh, our own National Institutes of Health was deeply involved in it, though I don't want to uh, say that the, um, the private uh, sector didn't do its role. Um, I actually think that, that this is part of our part of our own arguments is that, that actually markets are great tools and that private companies and companies of all kinds can do great things. But sometimes the government has to pay the bills for it, like in a pandemic. Um, and we, we shouldn't count that out and say, well, 
well, government was bad, even though when when government was essential to that response. But then you could take that argument and say, look, government also had to do other things like um, ensure proper masking, especially in healthcare settings. So we weren't continuing to contribute to the spread of the uh, disease while the private sector was doing its vaccination miracles. Um, and the third way that the Trump administration, I think, looked like it was going to completely fall apart on was distribution of the vaccinations because they didn't put pay any attention to that. They did a great job of getting the vaccination um, get vaccinations made, but they put no effort into uh, the distribution channels. And the Biden administration had to take a very hands-on government approach to ensuring distribution um, towards the beginning. Um, and, and, and so I've always said that I'm a mixed economy kind of guy because the government is involved in lots of things. It's essential in many things, not just the federal governments, but the state governments as well. And what we should be talking about is, again, what's the best mixture of public and private action? And if I could add one more yes, thing. Yes, please. Hello, science, right? These vaccines were all based on basic science, particularly the science of the messenger RNA. And who's been funding all that basic science all these years since World War II? Not the private sector, which pretty much more or less gave up on basic research and development after World War II. But the government, us, the American taxpayer, who through NSF and NIH and all these other agencies funded the basic scientific research that made it possible to to develop a vaccine quickly because the scientific infrastructure and the scientific knowledge was in place. And that was, I don't know what the right number is, but 90% maybe the result of uh, federal government funding of basic scientific research in this country. Yeah. And, and yep. yeah, that's, that, that's a, that's a great point. Cause I, it's, I think a, a lot of times that the, uh, the, the contributions of, of the federal government to doing this kind of basic research and funding that just simply wouldn't pay in a, in a market-based system. They're an example of, I guess, what you'd call market failure. Uh, and while the market fundamentalists tend to be focused more on government failure, they tend to downplay instances of really important uh, market failure. Exactly. And it's also about risk. So, you know, the myth of capitalism is that capitalists are, you know, they take on all this big risk and that's why they deserve to make profits because they've taken risk. And sometimes that's true, right? There are investors who do take real risks. But as Marianne Matsukato has shown in her work, The Entrepreneurial State, actually often the private sector is very risk averse. And it's actually the government that has the deep pocket and the capacity to take the long view and take big risks on new technologies. And the, you know, the textbook of exam example of that is the internet. Silicon Valley did not invent the internet. A lot of people have this myth or this idea that somehow the internet was invented by guys in a garage in Mountain View wearing hoodies. But no, it was the federal government that invested in what was originally ARPANET, which was designed to be a, a communication system that would resist military disruption in the event of a war. And then at a certain point when ARPANET was up and running and functional, then people actually led by Al Gore came up with the idea that it would make sense to commercialize it. And so then they handed it over to the private sector to commercialize. And the private sector has done a great job with commercializing the Internet. And we have all kinds of things today, like this Zoom call on which we're talking, that have been made possible by creative work in the private sector. But the foundation of that work, the technical basis for it, was not developed in the private sector. It was developed by the federal, by federally funded scientists and engineers. I, I want to move on to climate change because I know it's an issue that you two are both very knowledgeable about and care a lot about. And 
I have debates on the podcast uh, about climate change with my co-host Jay all the time, and he agrees with me that it's a serious problem. But his position, uh, which I think is a fairly common conservative position, at least for moderate conservatives, is, well, you know, we can fix it or at least we can mitigate the most severe consequences by doing things like tax cuts, which will grow the economy. And then because of that, that'll kind of unleash technological solutions, things like maybe geoengineering, carbon capture, that sort of thing. And to him, that makes a lot more sense than have big government impose regulations that are going to slow economic growth, slow down innovation, lower everyone's standard of living, and still not necessarily address the underlying problem. And I wanted to get your, your reaction to that. I'm glad it's your turn to answer, Eric. <laughs> oh, it's my turn? <laughs> Darn. Um, well, first off, I'd reject outright the idea that regulation necessarily slows the economy. Um, for example, the George W. Bush administration, right when they came into office, had a study done of the cost effectiveness of federal regulation. Um, and the most profitable regulations, the federal government had made the under, in their study in the last 10 years were actually emissions control laws because they saved enormous amounts of money um, on people's health care bills. So it's not necessarily true that regulation stifles the economy. Regulation is often the mother of invention. And so the structure of regulation, the kinds of regulations that you undertake and what they are for um, is are, are actually kind of the keys to the whole thing. This takes you back to the whole argument about propaganda, right? They want to position, the, the propagandists of the free market want to position all regulation is bad and all government is bad, but that's simply not true. Um, regulation is necessary um, and, and it should cause us to think hard about how we want to go about regulating the economy in order to ensure that it grows and it grows in ways that are environmentally um, beneficial, uh, unlike the climate changing fossil fuels, um, and that also benefit the majority, we think. Um, so I'm actually, in terms of climate mitigation, I'm a pro-market guy. I think we need to adjust the way our markets work in order to foster the most cost-effective solutions to, to climate change. But that can be done by designing tax systems properly, not necessarily tax cuts because you'd want to tax fossil fuels, but the very conservatives that make these free market arguments turned against um, market-based environmental regulations, and they did so when it started to look like those regulations might actually pass um, and thus harm their fossil fuel friends. So, so that, I mean, that's my response. I think that regulations are necessary and they aren't necessarily harmful. They can spur new industries. And there's lots of historical evidence of that. You know I me? Mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I really hope that you can persuade Jay to read our book, because one of the challenges of this book is that we are challenging a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the beliefs that many American conservatives hold. And what we're really asking for them is to take a few minutes or, OK, admittedly, a few hours. It's a long book. But to just think again about some of these assumptions. Because there were like seven of them in what you said. Yeah. And one of them, Eric's already addressed. Yeah, but the biggest one is this whole idea that tax cuts grow the economy. Wow. There is so much evidence that that's not true. And, you know, one of the places in the book where we channel our inner historians and philosophy of science is on the whole notion of supply side economics. The yeah. idea that tax cuts for the rich stimulate the economy, cause growth, make things better. There is so much evidence now to show that that theory has been refuted. Um, and 
if you really want technical innovation, again, so much evidence shows that direct government investment is far more effective than cutting taxes on the wealthy. So that's, you know, so that's another argument against that. But the other thing that I also want to say, because I do hear this argument all the time from people. So we actually have tested that hypothesis. Again, I'm going to speak as a historian of science here. So the hypothesis is you cut taxes on the wealthy, they create jobs, they innovate, new technologies solve the problem, everything is good. Well, scientists first started writing seriously about the threat of climate change from burning fossil fuels in the 1950s. Dave Killings first started measuring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 1958 because scientists already knew that if carbon dioxide increased, that it would likely change the climate. And they knew that the carbon dioxide was coming from fossil fuels. That was no secret. 1958, that's 65 years ago. So we have six, we have had 65 years of evidence, uh, reported, um, in mainstream media. Um, I have a new paper I've written with my graduate students where we talk about how this was discussed in 1969 on Meet the Press. Um, it was discussed on the Merv Griffin show. It was in children's books. It was in the Weekly Reader. I mean, this information has been out there for clever investors to think about, oh, this is a big problem. I could become really rich if I could make carbon capture work, or I could become really rich if I could make geoengineering work. And it has not happened. And we can go into a lot of detail about why that is the case. But the bottom line is that we have tested the hypothesis and it has failed. 60 years, 65 years of opportunity for the market to solve this problem on its own, and it hasn't. And I think, you know, there's, as I said, there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. So I don't want to oversimplify what is a complex issue. But I think the clearest one is the problem of external costs. That as, and I'm going to say this again, because as you said, you have conservative listeners, and we really, really do want conservatives to read this book, and at least give us a chance to make the case, right? We're not promising you'll be convinced, but you might be willing to think again about some of these issues. Um, the biggest weakness in capitalism as it's practiced today has to do with the problem of the external costs. These are costs that accrue to the consumer, to the worker, to the environment to bystanders that are not reflected in the price of the product. So we use in the book, we use the example of shoes. Let's say I'm a shoe manufacturer. I make a good shoe. Okay, I don't have a shoe here to use, but there's a podcast and nobody's looking anyway. But I make a beautiful shoe and I sell it at my to my customers at a good price. And that looks good and my customers are happy. But secretly at night, I am dumping toxic chemicals in the river behind my plant. And my consumers don't know that because when, I, when it comes, because first of all, no one knows because I do it at night and I'm not making that up. We know that companies have deliberately done stuff like this at night so nobody could see. But then maybe it comes out. Someone in the community realizes they reported. Maybe they file a lawsuit and then I lie about it. So now I've also denied my consumers good information about what's actually happening here. So there are all these really substantial costs that are not reflected in the price of the shoe. And because of that, there's little or no incentive for me to clean up my factory unless the government makes me. And that's why law and regulation is essential to this, because left to their own devices, most companies won't clean up that factory. In fact, many of them will even argue they can't, that even if they wanted to. So here's the other thing. I say, OK, you tell me you really should not be dumping toxic chemicals in the river behind your plant. And I say, yeah, I know it and I don't feel good about it and I wish I didn't have to. But if I spend money cleaning that up, 
and my competitors don't, then they're going to undercut me and drive me out of the market. And that's why relying on the self-interest or the goodwill or the social consciousness of companies doesn't work. Because yeah. unless you have a regulation that levels the playing field and makes everyone do it, the bad guys are always going to win. You know, what, what comes back to me again and again is not just the size of this myth, but the power of it. And I think to a lot of people, I mean, a successful myth, I think people just believe it is sort of, it's just the way the world works. And changing people's conception of how the world works, that's a, that's a big job. And I think it's an especially daunting job, given that so many of us now are kind of siloed into our own little worlds through social media and algorithms and that sort of thing. And so I'm trying to envision in my head, after I finish the book, I try to envision in my head sort of what a kind of reverse version of this big myth effort might look like and who would fund it in the first place, because it would have to be a big thing. And I'm sure you've, you've wondered that yourselves. And so I wanted to get your take on that. Once again, it's my turn to answer the hard question. <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that, but I partly, I, the reason I part, one reason I don't is that I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be creating the big myth of the left. Um, that's not the business I'm in. I'm, my, my, my job as a historian is to try to help, try to understand the world better and help other people understand it. And so my answer to that question is I, I think of it as, of our work is trying to inoculate people against those myths, help them understand the world a little bit better that they live in, um, knowing full well that I unfortunately will not reach most of the 330 something million Americans alive. Um, and I hope that we have a compelling enough story to tell to get some media amplification. Um, but I don't want to be like Nam and Neela um, and so forth. So. Um, I guess you could think of it as I'm, I'm undercutting myself, maybe, but I hope not. I hope there's enough um, Americans out there who who want to think and act in accordance with evidence to to um, to start thinking differently about about the way things are. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I agree with that. And the only thing I would add to it is I think, you know, what you've said here today, Michael, is so important for us, because, as you say, What's really striking in the story is the size, the scope, the power of this myth. And that's why we thought it was important to write this book. If people didn't believe all the things that you've just you know, said to us about letting the market do it, cut taxes, then we wouldn't have needed to write this right. book. Right. The fact that people believe those things shows how powerful and how effective this myth has been and makes me feel much better about all the hard work that we just spent and all the movies we didn't watch while we were writing this book. I got a final question for both of you, and, and that is, uh, how optimistic are you? I mean, do you see any kind of a plausible future for the United States, at least, where uh, the relationship between capitalism and democracy is maybe more in balance? Uh, like, I, I don't know, I tend to look toward Western, a lot of Western European countries as at least something semi-aspirational. And of course, my co-host Jay looks at that with dread, but that's kind of the point. So uh, what do you think? Uh, do you have a, a little bit, a lot of optimism? I don't know, somewhere in between? I'll jump in so that Eric can have the last word. Um, so I think we're facing a very difficult set of challenges, and I think it would be misleading to minimize that. I think we're in a pretty tough spot right now, but 
one of the things I will say, since you mentioned the Western social democracies, I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? What we really need to do is look at the results. How have these policies worked out for us here in America versus policies that other people have pursued in other countries? And when you look at the problem that way, when you look at it empirically, what you find is that almost every study that has looked at this question finds that people are happier and healthier in the Western European social democracies than they are here in the United States. And to me, the most telling statistic of all is that here in the United States, life expectancy is going down. And that is a huge historical reversal and really a shocking result for a country as wealthy as the United States. And that is not what's happening in the rest of the world. So we are doing something wrong in this country. I think our book helps to explain why that is, and therefore gives me some hope that if people understand it, then they might be motivated to say, yes, there could be a different mix of policies. We could have a different attitude towards governance in this country, and we could create a world in which we are just as happy and just as healthy and live just as long lives as people in Germany do. I can't really top that. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I think a lot about, um, what situations could bring about a more social democratic, um, outcome here in the United States. And I guess here's the case where Naomi's the optimist because I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about that. I wonder what we'd have to experience to bring it about. And, uh, uh, and I hope it winds up, I don't know. It's like I said, I, I can't top what Naomi said, but that's what I hope for because I mean, the, 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 the life expectancy statistics of the last few years in the U.S. have been kind of shocking and horrifying. Here's another way to put it. Most people don't think of Germans as particularly happy people. So the fact that Germans are happier than Americans should really give us pause. <laughs> well, yeah, that gives me pause, certainly. Uh, well, on that, though, we'll, we'll close. Again, the book is The Big Myth. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's well worth reading. There will be a link to it in the show notes. And uh, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, thank you so much. I had a great time talking with you today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.